Today we are beginning a series called In the Beginning, an in-depth study of the first sentence of the Torah and the first day of creation. And much of what I'm going to give over uh, was inspired by a class I went to with, uh, with my Rebbe, Rebbe Tzadkinsberg. This is, must have been 25 years ago. Um, so I'm going to take different ideas. But it's all focused on the first sentence of the Torah. So we'll start with a very well-known uh, statement by the sages that God looked into the Torah and created the world. Now this statement at first glance is counterintuitive. What does it mean? God looked into the Torah and created the world. The implication is the Torah precedes the world. Whereas if I didn't know this statement, I would say God gave the Torah to the Jews on Mount Sinai. And there was a world already. But here the statement says God looked into the Torah and created the world. But it's approximately 2,000 years old, this statement. Yeah. That God looked into the Torah and created the world. So, what does that mean? So here, we understand the Torah is what's called the blueprint of creation. That's how it's explained. In other words, if someone wants to build a house, so first they have to have the vision of the house. And they have to, like, this is what I want. And then, what do they do? They hire an architect. And they say, this is how I imagine it. Two stories. I want five bedrooms. I'd like, you know, the pool in the backyard. Um, etc, etc. A big living room. I want access from the kitchen into the dining room. Easy access. This is, this is what I see. And then the architect puts it down in writing. And then the builders come, and how do they know what to do? They have to look at the plans. They look at the plans. They're trained to know how to translate what's on paper into reality. So this parable, this mashal, is brought to explain what does it mean that God looked into the Torah and created the world. In other words, God had a vision of the world. He had an idea of what he wanted to create. And he created a blueprint. That blueprint is the Torah. And so then, when it actually came time to create the world, so it says God looked into the Torah and created the world. So therefore, the implication is, on a, we're talking on a very deep level here, that the world is a reflection of the Torah, not that the Torah is a reflection of the world. So in other words, let's say Shabbat and the cycles of seven. Because if I look at the world the way it is running today, so I might say, what place is there for Shabbos? It's like, isn't the world 24-7? But we, we don't keep Shabbos because... It, it, it makes logical sense to live your life 24-7 but we look into the Torah and the Torah is really the paradigm not the world and ultimately we believe that the, the world will let's say catch on to the divine, divine cycle as represented by seven the cycles of seven. This is especially important because this year is a Shemitah year. This is a sabbatical year. So we see 
that in the Torah, the cycles of the seven, in a sense, uh, engrave reality. A reality is a reflection of the Torah. The fact that most people don't see this is a different question. That's a different question. But most specifically, I learned from Rav Ginsburg when it says God looked into the Torah and created the world, it means specifically the seven days of creation as recorded in the Torah. Now what this means is that and this will have to come to understand what is the Torah made of? Letters. Combination of letters. Now I'll just use this example because it's very close to me. I, 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 I finished the book. I'm editing it now. Hopefully it will be published in the spring called The Mystical Nature of Light. And one of the a nice sized section of one of the chapters explains light according to the three Hebrew letters that make up light. Light is an aleph, a vav, and a resh. So according to our tradition, God spoke the world into reality. That's what we say every morning, Baruch She'amar Mahaya Olam. Blessed is the is the one who spoke and the world came into being. And it says in Pirkei Avot, which is not a mystical text, but that's where it's recorded that God created the world with ten sayings, ten expressions. Esther Mama wrote. And so therefore, in mystical sense, what is light? An Aleph, a Vav, and a Resh. When we say that the Torah is the blueprint of creation, the, the elements that make up the blueprint are the letters. In other words, just as a scientist if you ask the scientists, what is, what is the foundation of the world? What is the world made up of? So scientists would say atoms, particles, elements, quarks, uh, uh, chemicals, molecules, and, and the scientists would be absolutely right. Because when you get down to the foundation, everything in this room is made of those words that I just said. If you ask a sage, what is the world made of? You answer letters. So the question is, are they talking about the same thing? And the answer is yes. The language is different. But when you ask from a Torah point, what is the world made up? And we answer letters. It means exactly what a scientist says when he says atoms, molecules, elements. He's talking about the same thing. In other words, the world is nothing more than a combination of letters. Just like the difference between this table and the water and the flowers is just how the electrons, neutrons, and protons are reacting within an atomic combination of molecules. Just how you combine them is what makes the difference. That is the difference. That's what we learn in science. So we say the same thing in Torah. So when we say God looked into the Torah and created the world, the seven days of creation are words made up by letters. But the teaching behind that is each one of those things or entities that is being created is being created through a combination of letters. And so therefore, light is 
and Aleph, a Vav, and a Resh. And in this section of the book, so I explain it from not just a Torah point of view, but it was it's practically the, the, my favorite part of the book, but I take what science says about light and explain how the Aleph, Vav, and Resh manifest those teachings. That there's no contradiction here. That the Aleph, Vav, and Resh is exactly what science says that light is. And according to our tradition, this is true of everything. So what we want to do is we want to take the seven days of creation, but we want to condense that learning backwards. So the example I'll bring is how they came to discover the Big Bang in approximately, I think it was 1964. Two scientists uh, were trying to fix something totally unrelated to figuring out how the universe was created. And they picked up a background sound of radiation. And after eliminating every possibility, they realized that this background radiation is present in every part of the universe. And then they combined the understanding that the galaxies are expanding and they are, in a sense, flying away from each other. The whole universe is expanding at an astounding speed beyond our comprehension. We can't even comprehend how quickly we are flying through space now as we sit nicely in Simchat Shlomo and are learning about the creation. But the reality is that uh, it's very different than the uh, static reality that we think that we're, we're experiencing. So when they realized that the universe is expanding and then they were able to mathematically um, figure out the rate of expansion, then they said, well, why don't we just take this and work backwards? If the universe is expanding at this rate now, you know, let's make measurements. And they were able to figure out how the universe which is so big now, at an earlier time was smaller and was expanding at a smaller rate. And before that, it was smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you get to what they call an infinitely small speck of matter. So this is what science is telling us. I mean, if, if you read this in a... Uh, a science fiction book you'd say like this is crazy but this is what science is telling us and actually most of quantum physics and physics today if it was written as if it was happening in a science fiction book you'd say this is totally outlandish but the truth is is that uh, most of science today is predicated on total paradox and the greatest of them is light itself. Light itself is the greatest paradox. So why am I saying all of this? Is because we have a tradition that everything that was created in all of reality, this sounds like the Big Bang, was created on the first day. Actually, Rashi says this. This is this is like yeah, this is like what's called pshat, the simple understanding. Rashi says, everything that would be created was already created. And he brings us uh, in the, the, the third or fourth day of creation and makes the comment, it was really already, this was already created on the first day, but it's only being manifest on this day of creation. And he says, this is true of all creation. Everything was created on the first day. And then just 
was revealed or took its place or manifested at its appropriate time. At its appropriate time. So therefore you have the idea that if you understand the first day of creation, then you have a basis of understanding all of creation. Then tradition says we can we can like condense it even more. We can see the whole first day in the first verse of the Torah. And then you can see it all in the first word of the Torah. And even more you could see it in the first letter of the Torah. No, no. He just says to the first day. But other teachings show that, that in the first sentence is already how the first day develops, as we'll see. And the, the, the fundamental principles as laid down in the first day of creation is how all of creation will then develop. As far as the first word, Bereshit, so you have a book called Tikkunei Zohar, and the entire book is just about Bereshit. What is it combining the letters of Bereshit in different combinations and explaining what that means? And then the first, we'll see in the, how the first letter symbolizes everything that we're going to learn. And then we can even see in the in the white space that precedes the first letter, in a letter that is there but is not there. And along with that we're going to look at the first verse and going to see how much we can see in it. How many different ideas are present in the first verse of the Torah. Now, an understanding that many people don't realize or don't put it together is that when the Torah begins from Bereshit Bar Elohim at the Shemaimah Arts in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the question is what beginning are we talking about? That's how we translate in the beginning Bereshit in the beginning now it says in the Gemara that before this world God created and destroyed 974 worlds. So the, the first question one might ask is we're talking about an, an, an omnipotent God, a perfect God, an all-knowing God. It took him 974 attempts. Is that what we mean? No, that's not what we mean. What we understand is, and this is a very deep understanding of even our own lives, and since I said that, I want to throw in what I'm going to say now. Some of them may ask, why is it important to learn about cosmology? Why is it important to learn about Bereshit? Why God created the world? How God created the world? What order it took? Well, what do I need to know this? You should know that the Zohar, which is the classic work of Kabbalah, is basically a, an explanation of the Chumash, Parsha by Parsha. But the biggest section of the Zohar, of any one Parsha, is on Bereshit. And it delves into creation like in a very profound manner. Again, you ask, why? And so the answer that we can give is man is created in God's image. We just said the world is created in the image of God as reflected in the Torah. God looked into the Torah and created the world. So if one understands about the creation that becomes our, our window, our gate to understanding many other things. You say, well, what difference is it if I know 
how God created the world. But if, if we have a divine soul and one of the one of the aspects of our divine soul is that we have creative powers that animals don't have, that plants don't have, that minerals don't have. There's something about man that's very unique and is in the image of God. So if we can understand the creative process, then that gives us insight into ourselves. It gives us insight into the Torah itself. It gives us insight into our own psyche, our emotions, our intellect. It's not a an abstract uh, type of learning, even though it may seem so. But hopefully, as we learn, we'll come to understand how this applies in our lives. If we understand how all of creation can be condensed into the first sentence, and if we understand the first sentence, then we, we have a handle on what is the world about. What are we doing here? What are my challenges? What are our, our possibilities? That's the purpose of this learning. And we shouldn't lose the forest for the trees and think that we're only learning like the first sentence of the Torah. So you say, okay, so how can I apply that to life? But what we're, what we're trying to say is all of life and reality is included in the first sentence. So if we understand that, it gives us tremendous insight into, into our life. So going back to this idea, so when we say Bereshit, which beginning are we talking about? So it's not so simple. Not so simple. So we're told that Bereshit is the beginning of our world or our reality, which is called Olamatikum, the world of rectification. Why is it called the world of rectification? And here I'm going to simplify what the Ariza, the great Kabbalist of, of, of Sfat, um, is, is written out by a student in, in tremendous detail, and for 500 years people have been pouring over these texts to understand what I'm going to like, say in five minutes. Because this is like, just like the, the simplified version. But we're told that when, when the desire or ratzon, as it were, arose in God's mind. Now we're all talking human talking about concepts that are truly beyond language uh, are certain that we can understand. Nonetheless, we have these traditions that help us get a handle on it. So we use human language. So when the thought arose in God's mind to create the world, so there was a dilemma. Where would an infinite God, and whatever we call, so what was pre-creation like? Is like, there's no way we can describe it, but we can use words like infinite and full of the presence of God. There was nothing else. That's like the best we can do. It, and it's called sometimes the or Ainsof, the infinite light of God. However, we can imagine that. There was nothing physical, nothing material. It was just an infinite presence of God's light. Where do you put a, a finite world that's other than God or has the illusion of being other than God? Where does one put it? It sounds like maybe a, a, like a, a simple question, but in, in Kabbalah and philosophy, it's not, it's not a simple question because finite is... Is like an oxymoron to infinite. It's like they don't really mix so well. So the Arizal revealed a paradigm of cosmology that has profound implications for not just how we understand how God created the world. There's profound implications as to 
who we are and what we are doing in the world and what is our relationship to God and what is our mission in the world. And the Arizal taught that he had that in mind. And it wasn't cosmology for cosmology's sake. So therefore he explained a word that you might have heard, Simpson. That God, as it were, contracted his infinite light and created a vacuum called the Rishima. Now vacuum means an empty space. Nonetheless, it's explained in Hasidut by definition there cannot be anything that is empty of God's presence. So therefore it explains that in the empty space, excuse me, I said the vacuum was called the Rishimo, that's the um, impression. The vacuum is the Halala Panui. The vacuum is called the Halala Panui. Today outer space is called Halal. Like empty, what appears, it's not empty space, that's the point. But it appears to be empty space. And in this empty space, there is a, an impression of the original infinite light. And then, and many people learn the, the similarities, that from a single point, a ray pierces through into the vacuum, and all that would ever be created comes into being through this ray of light and that's how creation begins and this is all pre-bereshit all happening pre-bereshit and then the, the initial vessels of creation are flooded with this light that is now streaming into the world and we're talking very symbolic language here but there's a reality behind the symbol. Just like every parable has a meaning behind the symbols of the parable. And the, these vessels, which would be like the original array of the spherot, the ten spherot, God's divine emanations, they, they could not hold the light and they shattered. And this is what's called the breaking of the vessels and the Arizal taught that our world is called Olamatikun because our world consists of the shattered shards of the vessels of a previous world again so what I said is very simplified each, each concept has profound teachings behind it is very complex but it's important to understand that what our world is that has a beginning and it's the beginning of the world of rectification now we also have this idea and this is a very important point and you know people are making it left and right now that throughout history the Torah made a claim that God created the world something from nothing now this is also counterintuitive it doesn't make sense something from nothing we don't have let's say the intellectual capability of really understanding because it's a paradox like nothing means nothing so how can something come from nothing nonetheless throughout history we have a tradition that God created the world something from nothing. The Greeks posited an eternal universe. Where, where did it come from? It's always been here. There was no beginning, there will be no end. The universe always existed. This was a Greek belief and much of the world um, believed that. And in fact, this is also quoted uh, frequently now, that they did a survey in the early 60s of the top scientists around, and two-thirds of them believed in an eternal universe. That's why, even though the ideas surrounding the Big Bang 
which are now accepted is not a theory but it's accepted worldwide that this is the description of the creation of the world true in 20-30 years it could be modified it could change but the revolutionary implication of the of the Big Bang is there was a beginning and rabbis are writing about this and scientists are now writing about this because the implication of the Big Bang cannot be avoided that there was a beginning now science cannot tell you what happened before the beginning or what started the beginning but science will now say the greatest scientists in the world will say we cannot avoid the conclusion of the implication of the Big Bang that there was there was a point I want to say a point in time but a point before time that creation started this is a, this is a phenomenal idea this is a phenomenal realization and now if you, if you go to a good Jewish bookstore you will see many books that are uniting the Torah account of creation and science's account of creation this is a, a tremendous uh, advance in human consciousness because for so long science and religion were pitted against each other and that's why the the discussion in America between evolution and intelligent design is not the correct discussion it is not the correct discussion it is just perpetuating the same religion versus science paradigm and truthfully we're, we're getting beyond that but people are not are not aware of that and it's the wrong voices that are leading these discussions but there's huge fights in, in uh, school boards across the country and it's just, it's just the wrong discussion it's not, it's not correct and it's not proper the discussion is how do we come to understand what the Torah says and what science says without them being in conflict with each other so therefore you have all of these absolutely brilliant books that are showing the, the most uh, detailed descriptions of what science calls the description of, the, of the creation and what Torah and especially Kabbalah says so uh, some of what we learn will be will touch on. I just touched on it, but we'll touch on these ideas. And so, therefore, the the concept of Yeshmi Ayin, because even though this infinitely small speck of matter from which ten billion galaxies come from is a something. But the way science describes it, it's as if it's a nothing, right? Because it's it's so min- uh, infinitely minuscule that it's as close as we can get to saying yesh mi'ayin. But that even that tiniest speck came from somewhere, and that's why the pre-creation reality is called the Ein Sof with the nothingness without end and yet paradoxically there was a yesh in the ayin because if you say nothing so by definition that means nothing but not in a Jewish definition a Jewish definition can handle paradox the true something is the true nothing and it does. It, that sounds paradoxical because it is. Because it is. So it's just important to understand where we're starting from with Bereshit. In other words, there are many worlds, 
however we understand the 974 worlds and so just to pick up an idea that I said before I didn't really complete is couldn't God get it right what does it mean he created 974 worlds and destroyed them but it's just like this last world that we said it, and you'll see the implication for a human being is it's explained that when it says destroyed it doesn't mean destroyed in the way that we think of it what it means is each world became the foundation of the next world it's, it's the paradigm we'll use a tree in the, in the spring is, is full of leaves and buds and then it produces fruit and then in the fall its leaves turn and it, they die and they fall on the ground and it creates mulch and new earth and the, the ingredients that the earth needs to soak into itself to be self-perpetuating and so the, the, the leaves that fall from the tree become the fuel or the energy for the, the tree to continue to grow 10 years from then or 100 years or 1,000 there are all these wildfires just in, in uh, California but there are many places that they start fires on purpose because the only way certain seeds will open up is in the intensity of heat and so if you don't have fires on a cyclic level it's not meant to burn everything down but you'll get these trees that will be hundreds of years old and at a certain point they'll all die they'll all die and the seeds can't open up can't open up so they need the heat so this is a wisdom beyond right human wisdom and so we see this in cycles of nature all the time and we see it in our own life histories how many times we reach the end of the line in one stage of our life and it's like like there's nothing left it's like we have to in a sense destroy ourselves to reinvent ourselves because we've reached the end of the line and so our new stage is built on the rubble of a previous stage but it's not really rubble it's just something we have to go through to get to the next stage so that's how it's explained these 970 world, four worlds and in this our world the fact that the result taught is made of the broken pieces of a previous world is is how it's manifest in our whole reality and the, and the Arizal goes on to explain not necessarily in this context but it fits in that this becomes the mission of humanity but specifically the Jewish people is to find and identify the sparks of holiness and light that are entrapped in these broken vessels and to redeem them and elevate them and through that fix the world and that's why you might hear some of this next week because this is what Tikkun Olam is now the way I teach Tikkun Olam is from a mystical point of view that this is when we talk about fixing the world so you say well where do we get this idea where does this idea come that we need to fix the world so this is, is part of this whole cosmology so this is this, I'm going through this you know, fairly quickly but this is telling you like wh- what do you do with, with, with this cosmology ah it's really telling us what are we doing here we're, we're a product of the cosmology and this is telling us what we're doing here what the nature of our world is what the existential predicament 
the world is, what we can do about it, the soul's connection with the body, etc., etc. Okay, so let's return to an idea that God is speaking the world into being. So therefore, when we read the first sentence of the Torah, we have to read it that whatever God is creating is a product of this combination of letters. But not only that, same thing the way you take molecules or atoms, and if you would just introduce other atoms, you'll make other molecules. And, and then you get a different reality of it, from that. So it's the same thing. This book, the Tikkuni Zohar, took the first word of the Torah, Bereshi, and combines the letters in different ways, and then teaches what we can learn from this, as far as how, when, where, why God created the world. So that's how we're approaching the first sense of the Torah. Not so much like it says in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. But we want to know the letters that are making up the words is telling us what these concepts are. And if we can understand that, then we're, then we're understanding the creative power through which God is creating through speech. Because we also create through speech not on the level where God says, the first God says is, V'yomer Elohim yihi or, vayihi or. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So that's what we're learning before, when, when it says, V'yomer Elohim yihi or, so God said, or, and there was light. So that's the connection between speech and light. We can understand it on a limited level, but it's enough that we can then understand it from a divine level. How many times have we, we use the expression, like cut to the heart with something that we said to someone? We said something like sharp or insulting, and it's like, it's like stabbing someone. Where you can take a relationship of whatever, 20, 30, 40 years, and say one wrong thing. And, and you've, you've destroyed that relationship. Or the opposite. There's so many stories, and they're true stories, of people who are about to jump off a bridge, hang themselves you know, slit their wrists. And on the way, they bumped into someone who said just a nice thing to them. Sometimes even just, hi, how are you? And it's like, it snapped them out of it. And they ended up not killing themselves. This is an extreme example, but I think everyone knows of like lesser examples where our words create reality. A... Uh, a film where a speech is given, you know, can can grab in our day millions of people, millions of people's attention. It, uh, you know, the Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King, I have a dream, right? Moshe Rabbeinu and Devarim talking to the people. These are things that. Uh, have enormous power. And for the evil also. If you've ever seen pictures of the, the one who rose in Germany and through the power of speech, really, he had a, what can you say, he had a incredible draw to his speaking. He mesmerized the most supposedly cultured people on earth to do the most barbaric things. But a lot of it, you see, it was through, like, he spoke and, and, and people were, like, mesmerized. So these are human examples 
which is a shadow image when we talk about God's divine speech. So when we study the first sentence of the Torah, really the whole Torah, but we're just talking about the first sentence, we're talking about God speaking the world into being, and that the words are what the concepts are. So therefore, if we understand the words, then we understand the concepts. So let's take the first letter of the Torah. Where else would we start? Right? Let's take the first letter of the Torah, <coughs> which is a bet. And not just any bet, <coughs> but it's a large bet. There are, <coughs> in the Torah, really, <coughs> a couple of handfuls of large letters and small letters. But when they come, means that there's a whole tradition behind them, why they are big and why they are small. So the fact that the Torah begins with the big bet is already telling us, like, look at me. As Rashi would say, darshani, like, make drushes about me. <laughs> and actually, see, Rashi says that in, in, in the first um, word, Ambreshi, he says, he says, like, make drushes on me. Darshani. So the bet is not a likely letter to begin the Torah with. Why? Because you would think that God would begin the Torah from the first letter. Or at least maybe one of the letters in God's name. So there's a, a beautiful uh, Zohar. It comes in the introduction to the Zohar. And there's a number of children's books that have been illustrated of this Zohar, where all the letters come before God and say, God, please begin the Torah with me. And it begins with the last letter, the Tav. So the Tav comes and says, please start the Torah with me, because I am the first letter of the Torah. And, and God says, very, very good reasoning, very nice. But there's this other word, I don't remember them for all of them, that begins with your letter. It's not such a, not such a good concept. So, thank you for your offer, but I'll pass. Then the Shin comes. The Shin says, one of your names that's written on the mezuzah begins with me. God says, wow, you're, you're right. But also the word sheker, lie, begins with you. It goes to the whole alphabet. Each one presents its reason. And God is like, good reason, but, but. And then comes to the bet. And the bet says, please start the Torah with me, because I'm the first letter of bracha of blessing and with my letter we will come and bless you so God said I like that idea I'll start the Torah with the bet now of course this is given over in kind of like a, a child's um, story and we know every midrash is, you know, has deeper and deeper meanings what about the Aleph? Aleph doesn't even have a chance to present its case. So God says, don't worry. I'll begin the Ten Commandments with you. That's just in the, in, in the introduction to the Zohar. Let's just learn about this bet and the what's called the Havamina. That maybe the Torah should have started with an Aleph. So the bet is the number two. So this is what what I meant when you can take the entire cosmos and make it smaller to get to the first letter. Because what does two imply? Okay, one and one. What else? When we, when we say two, what does that mean? Duality. But you're true that it's true that two, you'll see in a second, it's true, two is one plus one. So two represents duality. So, there, so this is telling us this is the reality of our world. Because, as we said before, there was only oneness. 
the very act of creation sets up a paradigm of duality, of polarity, of opposites. Now this has a negative and a positive uh, thrust. In other words, opposites can be contradictory and create war and dissent and everything that goes along with that. But duality could also, opposites can be complementary and could, can add uh, something that each one on its own cannot do. You have opposites. That's, that's what we say about a uh, relation to be, between soulmates. That each one is one. But when two ones come together, they create something much greater than just one plus one. The, the two takes on a reality much greater. So this is already telling us something fundamental about reality. And therefore, if you, if you would go home tonight and just start scribbling all of the dualities, paradoxes, and opposites that you could think of, you, just, you would go on for hours. Because almost everything you can think of, you could think of an opposite. Almost for everything there is, even in science now, they have what's called antimatter. All of energy works on positive charges and negative charges. And without one of them, th there would be no physical universe. The very fundamental particles that make up everything are based on opposite charges. And when you get into the atom, the relationship between electron, proton, and neutron, is they're all like feeding off of each other. They're all in harmony and yet uh, attracting and repulsing each other. This is what's called in Kabbalah, Ratso Vishav, run and return that we're told exists at every level of reality, from molecular to the, the way the heart beats in and out, in and out, the way we breathe in and out, in and out, the mystery of life and death, of male and female, light and darkness, heaven and earth, good and evil, Shabbat and the weak, Israel and the nations. All of this has to do with this reality that's already revealed in the Bet. It's already revealed in the Bet. And the fact that it's big is telling us this is a, a big teaching here. And this is, an, this, is, this, is, this is what we mean when we say that that we can take all of creation and bring it back to the first day, to the first sentence, to the first word, to the first letter. Because this first letter, in a sense, creates the framework that everything works in. There's Olam Hazer and Olam Abba. This world and the world to come. There's a soul and there's the body. There's life and death. There are positive mitzvahs and negative mitzvahs. Negative means that you don't do. That's what they're called. They're called positive and negative. Words, things that we do, things that we don't do. There's permitted and there's forbidden. There's pure and there's impure. And that's what we say at Havdalah. Say, but those are just symbolic of all. Because when we make Havdalah, Havdalah means separation. This is a world 
of opposites that we separate. And so much of the mitzvot is to train us how to make proper divisions between things, proper boundaries, proper... There's a time, there's a time and place for everything. So this is all alluded to in the Bet. So, see, in the Torah, the Bet is black. And what surrounds it? This is, what, this is what's called the black fire and white fire. The Zohar compares the way the letters are written on the parchment to black fire and white fire. What does Peh mean? Mouth. So as it were, the Peh that is surrounding the bed of Bereshi, as it were, is the bed emanating from the mouth of God. And I say as it were, because of course we don't envision God with a physical mouth. But interestingly enough, this will lead us into the, the Aleph. And this, this is a, a very long Torah in of itself. In of itself. But we said already that God said to the Aleph, I'll start the Ten Commandments with you. So, the Gemara says that in comparison to, to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Sayings of Creation are like mundane talk. In other words, the, and I didn't emphasize this enough, that the Ten Sayings to which God created the world are, in Kabbalah, are obviously connected to the Ten Sefirot. And both of these are connected to the Ten Commandments. So the Gemara says that the Ten Sayings which the world created are, relatively speaking, mundane in relationship to the Ten Commandments. Which is a pretty astounding... I and mean, here we're talking the creation of the world. But you know why it says that? Is because... And this... This goes back to Rashi, the first Rashi on the first verse, and we hopefully we'll have time to learn some of the Rashi's. The Rashi's on, on, on the seven days of creation are incredible. So Rashi says, don't read it be Reshit in the beginning. He says it's Bishvil. Read the bet to me, not in, but for the sake of. And then he says, for the sake of Torah, which is called Reshit, and he brings a verse in which the Torah is called the first of my ways. And for Israel, which is called Reshit, the first of my produce. But later in the sixth day, Rashi says like this, it says, Yom Hashishi. We say this in Kiddush every week. Yom Hashishi. So Rashi points out, wait a minute, it doesn't say Yom Hasheni, Yom Hashlishi, Yom, it says Yom Sheni, Shlishi, why Yom Hashishi? So Rashi says an amazing thing, he says, this is alluding to another sixth day. What sixth day? The sixth of Sivan in which the Torah was given. And listen to what Rashi says. Rashi says this is to teach us that had God not given the Ten Commandments to the Jewish people, the whole world would return to Tohu and Tohu, to chaos and void. Why are the ten sayings of creation called mundane? Because without the ten commandments, the world in, its, in a sense would have no moral or ethical rudder. The world would be directionless, aimless, 
And therefore, the purpose of creation could not be fulfilled. So therefore, God takes this Aleph, which we might have thought would start creation, and says, don't worry, I'll start the Ten Commandments with you. Meaning that there's something about this Aleph even more important than the Bet. And what is it? It's Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. This becomes the purpose of creation, to know that there's one God. So, so there is a formula here that applies everywhere. Before God creates the world, there's only the infinite oneness of God. As soon as God creates the world with a bet, there's now two. There's God and there's something, at least which appears to be other than God, or has an independent consciousness other than God. And God chose to do this. But it's now two. It's now the bet. But what then becomes the purpose of creation is to reveal the oneness below the surface or behind the reality of the duality. So what is the formula? One becomes two in order to become one. Now we'll take this one step further. God creates man in the image of God. There's many ways to understand this. But look what happens here. When God first creates man, it's Adam. And we're told that God created Adam male and female. In other words, however we understand it, Adam will call an androgynous being, both male and female. Or, almost like Siamese twins, had a male and female part, which later, that's the whole symbolism of, of removing the rib of Adam is more the separation of the female element of Adam, which is not male, it's male and female, and leaving the male element. So now, Adam, which was one, becomes two. And what, what does God say right after that? Or, or actually, the Torah says, it says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they will become one flesh. So there's two interpretations what does one flesh mean. One is that through uh, marital union they will become one again. And not or, but and or, that a child that is produced from two human beings produces one human being. That's the one flesh. But do you see the formula here? Adam is one who becomes two in order to become one. So now here, we'll put it all together because this is all we have time for today. So here you can understand what I meant that you can bring the whole thing back to the first letter. Right? I know when I first said it, that sounded like, oh, like what, what are you talking about? But this is what we're talking about. And then what you'll see is, so what was created in the first sentence? Heaven and earth. The epitome of opposites. That heaven and earth is a manifestation of the bet. And then what was created in the first day? Light and darkness. Day and night. And how do we end the first day? Vayi Erev, Vayi Boker, Yom Echad. Not Yom Rishon, as you would expect, because all the other days are called the second day, third day, fourth day. So it should be first day, second day. Third day, not if, if, if it started Yom Echad, then you would expect the next one to be two days. No, two days. Yom Stein, Yom Shadosh, Yom Arba. It doesn't. So why Yom Echad? 
is to teach us what was created on the first day. First, if going backwards, day and night, and light and darkness, and then heaven and earth, and then the Beth. It's all emanating from the Beth. Because as soon as oneness allows there to be otherness, then everything follows from that reality. It marks all of reality. So that's what we meant, and we're just beginning here, but that's what we meant, that it can all be brought back to the first day, and the first sentence, and the first word, and then the first letter, and even the implication of the white space around the letter and the letter that precedes Bet, which is Aleph, which is one. The creation will get back to the one, but as soon as God created a physical universe, already had the two, spiritual and physical. So the Bet represents the beginning of the physical but it's always in relationship. Opposites are always in relationship. So, really, the secret of not just the first day of creation, but of all creation, is one becomes two in order to become one. 